Hare Krishna. How are you doing? So we sing Jai Radha Madhava. Uh, someone want to grab the, see if the board is there? So we can put it here and others can sing along. Let me... Krishna, Krishna, Krishna. 
So everyone can repeat after me. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Bhagavate Vasudevaya Hare Krishna So today we're going to hear something called care to share care to share what is why is it what 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 do we have to offer and why should we share spiritual knowledge with others what what is what's the benefit of it? So that is the be today's discussion. So there's an old Chinese saying, and it goes may it goes may you live in interesting times. And most people think it it's a blessing, but it's actually a curse. You live in interesting times. So right now in human society, we've seen, uh, this is called Kali Yuga. So, and you can see in your own lifetime, 
It's a very precarious perch that we're on. Even more than usual in the recent times. And so what what does a bhakti yogi, what is the philosophy of Bhagavad Gita and Krishna consciousness, what is it meant to do? Or is it supposed to do anything? Are we just concerned of the happiness within? You know, you're a spirit soul, you're not the body. So should you, you know, care about whatever happen, whatever happens on the bodily material level? The affairs of this world come and go. So should the bhakti yogi invest in solving the problems that you see in this world? So, so you heard this term, uh, in this world or not of this world. Bhakti is described to be in this world but not of this world. That is a Christian term. Um, it is um, something that you've heard, but it doesn't seem, it's very hard to understand. It's high spiritual plat- uh, technology. That, that platitude is spot on, but uh, where is the example of it? Like if somebody says, go in the water, but don't get wet. And you'll be like, okay, well, you have to show me how that's done, because I don't understand. It sounds quite mystical. And it is mystical. Bhakti yoga is mystical in the sense not of bending a spoon with your mind or reading people's thoughts, but of being in harmony with the divine. Okay. So this harmony, when Arjuna, when he understood Bhagavad Gita, how are you guys doing back there? Welcome. He did not uh, back away from reality or back away from everything, but he saw everything connected to the Supreme. His illusion was dispelled. At the end of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, uh, has, uh, how, how do you like everything? What was the, how was the class? He said, Arjuna says, yes, my illusion is now dispelled. Like if you look out the window... Uh, and you see it's bright outside. You say, oh, I see the shine outside. How many of you say, I see the shine outside? What, what do you say? You have a little kid back there. He shook his head. What do you say? The, the sunshine. Okay. Do you say shine or do you say, I see the shine outside or the sunshine? Sunshine. Okay. So it's a wholesome whole package. You see the, the energy, but you understand the source. That there's a wholesome. Like right now, you can go to Whole Foods and they'll offer you all kinds of holistic opportunities, holistic uh, uh, things to keep your body wholesome. But how can you be wholesome if you don't know what is the whole? you got to know what is the whole before you can speak about wholesome. So holistic context means sun, sun means if you see the shine, you understand there is the sun. There is where it comes from. So the holistic context of, a, of the spiritual uh, personality is that he sees vidyavanaya sampane. He sees all living entities with equality. So there's a famous verse in Bhagavad Gita. Vidyavanaya sampane brahmane gavani hastini. Shuni chaiva svapakecha pandita samadarshanaha. 
So what is uh, gavi? What animal is that? Cow. What is hasti? Elephant. Brahma, Gavani, Hastini, there's Shuni, Chaiva, there's Swa, Pake, there's a dog and a dog eater. So a person who sees the priest, the Brahmana, he sees the elephant, the cow, the dog, the dog eater. He sees them in this wholesome context, all spiritual living entities. For example, uh, what is your name, sir? What's your name again? Yes, this gentleman right there pointing to himself. Prem, okay, Prem, what kind of car do you drive? Are you driving? Nissan. Are you a Nissan? You are a Nissan? No, okay. Jai. So you are not that car. You are the driver. And do you have a car, young lady? What kind of car? Toyota, are you, see, I have a driver Toyota. What if Toyotas did not care about people who drove Nissans? That is called prejudice. You know, Toyotas are good, Nissans are bad. Actually, they did a study. Uh, they did a, a university study. And it was at Penn State University. There was a whole coalition that was done. And they studied the two different opposing political groups. And the, it, the first thing that they learned is that 40% in each group thought the other, the other group, 40% thought the other group was evil. 20% did not believe that the people in the other group were human beings. Whatever other group there was. And another 16 to 20% thought the world would be better if they were not even alive. It gets a little gruesome as it goes down. <laughs> we thought the 40% was bad. <laughs> it got even worse. So, for example, in Florida some years ago, there was a young boy. And he, he held... A puppy by its neck over a balcony. And some ladies, some neighbors uh, came to notice this. They contacted the police. When the police arrived, the boy had escaped. He had gone somewhere else. This young, young guy had gone somewhere else. So they developed a neighborhood-wide dragnet. And finally they captured the, this Young guy. Meanwhile, nine billion chickens are held by the neck and are cut on the throat. Nine billion chickens. And even worse, for those who understand the, the value of Krishna's cows, 30 million cows are killed annually. 30 million if you break it down to day, you find out so how much in just one day it is amazing. So where is the happiness within? One of the themes in Bhagavad Gita is that happiness, there are prerequisites to happiness. It is not something, oh, just be happy. Like for example, 
And if you're born in America, your parents say, I just want you to be happy. And then maybe in India they say, I just want you to do your duty. Maybe one will say that, another one says that. But everyone needs to know that there are actually prerequisites for happiness. What are the prerequisites? First thing is that in the Gita explains that you have to have your mind and senses under control. Then you have to have spiritual knowledge. And then from spiritual knowledge you can get peace. And then Krishna says without peace, if you don't get peace you cannot have happiness. So, we are in what is called the land of the free, the home of the brave. It's considered a very advanced country. Some of you might have come to this country seeking better opportunities. So, there is a worldwide massive epidemic of anxiety and mental illness. And they have done studies and they discovered that uh, America, land of the free, home of the brave, is rated number one when it comes to anxiety. And as far as markers of unhappiness, it is uh, in the countries that have uh, developed countries, it is it's leading by a wide margin compared to other countries according to uh, an unhappiness and distress but we feel like yes we're doing everything right we are a powerful and intelligent country we're doing everything so they did a study in Yale they said if, uh, if any uh, the students that enter Yale 50% of them have to seek mental counseling Many of them in the freshman year, they, they've got so, so much distress to come in. And to go into a prestigious university, you have to get ahead of everybody else. But once you get in the university, you find you're just a little Joe. There's so many people that are just intelligent as you or more intelligent than you. So it, it's quite humiliating. It's quite distressing. So they decided to do a, a, a course on happiness and well-being. And this was done by the psychology department. And so they put a little seminar room, maybe half the size of this room. They thought maybe 30 people will come. But as it came closer to the event, they had to continue to move the space. From the Senate, Senate uh, se- uh, seminar room to a, you know, kind of a ho- large hall classroom, then the auditorium. They moved it to a concert hall auditorium. One fourth of the entire school enrolled in the study in the uh, class, happiness and well-being. And so there were actually some uh, devotees that spoke there. There was one Devamrita Swami who spoke there. So this is ostensibly the, the full of bright students, but nobody knows how to be happy. There, there, there's a great uh, 
desire. How can we become happy? Here's some other statistics. So yeah, World Health, Health Organization, and those about the uh, the U.S. with anxiety, American Psychological Association, also from the federal government, says one third of all Americans will have some psychological disorder, and the federal government says uh, for the youth, for the younger people, fifty percent of them will have some psychological disturbance that they will face in life, some some anxiety, some some anxiety disorder. So, how can bhakti yoga contribute? So, as we mentioned, control of the mind, control of the senses. These are not something that you hear in any of these classes. We are taught in our regular modern education that isn't it? Shouldn't you? If you get some money, you get everything in a row. Everything will all your ducks lined up. You attain your happiness. But this is, this is what is called Rajaguna. The desires produce more desires. Previously, wealthy people would begin to, they would actually work less. We find that people that are, have some degree of wealth, they're working more and more and more because their whole sense of identity is tied to the work itself. And they're finding uh, uh, complete anxiety. Chintam apareyam means there are constant worries and fears, and it's in, it's never ending. There is the uh, has anybody studied Buddhism? Have you know anything about Buddhism? So, do you remember the four noble truths? Four noble truths. Four noble truths. Number one, the material world is full of suffering. Number two, suffering is caused by desire. Now that might seem quaint, but most of us, it's a hard pill to swallow. That suffering comes from your material activities. As long as you're acting on the material platform, you will suffer. As long as you're chasing after material happiness, you will find distress. First and second noble truth. Bhagavad Gita differs in the third part. The third part, third noble truth of Buddhism is to stop suffering, is to stop desiring. So that's where Vedanta would state that actually you exist. And desire is an inherent expression of your existence. So we see these light bulbs here. What color spectrum of light would come out of that light bulb if we painted it blue? Blue. What color does white light contain? Has so many colors, yeah. But once you paint it blue... You're only getting the blue spectrum. You're, cut, you're limiting its expression. So the conditioned soul is in this body and is covered with material desire, lust. And so the original love of the soul is being corrupted into lust. 
And so the true expression of one's individuality is corrupted. So it's not that desire is the problem. It's the corruption of that desire. Like Lord Chaitanya, he says, Chito Darpana Bhajanam, that we have to clean the heart by chanting the Lord's names. Bhava Nirvapanam, and thus we will extinguish the struggle that is of the material world, which is like a forest fire. So in describing materialistic thought, Krishna discusses in this uh Chapter 16. They believe to gratify the senses is the prime necessity of human civilization. Isn't that what you see on the billboards? Gratify, gratify, gratify. Thus, until the end of life, their anxiety is immeasurable. Bound by a network of hundreds of thousands of desires... And absorbed in lust and anger, they secure money, even by illegal means, to gratify their senses. Oh, technology. Doesn't it, it won't turn off when you want it to turn off. <laughs> so we are dragged by our hopes. Asha. So one is one of the problems that we face is that we have hope. Do you know that's one of our problems? That we have hope. That's our problem. We have hope that our material situations there will be happiness at the end. Just you're not working hard enough. What is the uh, what animal is the example? Of the uh, American dream. Donkey. (laughs) (laughs) What is the American dream? You just work like a donkey. And then you'll get some happiness. And if you're not happy, you're not working like a donkey enough. But why is a donkey described as a fool? Where is the grass? It's everywhere. It's already there. There's an example of the deer musk. Uh, the, the deer that produces musk or this fragrance from its belly button. It will go wandering the forest. Where is that smell? Where is that smell? I, I can't find it. I can't find it. And he's hungry. But he, he will abandon his uh, idea of eating. Because he's, where is that smell? Where is that smell? But it's already there with him. So happiness is available for the living entity, but he is seeking outside through the external situations. And he's this never satisfied. So he's dragged by his hopes. If I just get some comfort, some adoration, some profit, if someone recognizes me, then perhaps I will feel happy. And I can hold on to that. But it all becomes mogasha, mogakaramano. It all is destined for destruction. You can't hold on to that. (laughs) 
So perhaps Krishna knows what he's talking about. The culture that we're being trained in, if you live in America, you're being trained in materialistic culture. If you live in India, also you're being trained in materialistic culture. The culture that we are being trained in. Now what is materialist? Usually we think materialist, uh, that's someone who's a little bit more wealthy than me. No, it's my neighbor. His house is a little bigger. He's a materialist. Get him! <laughs> Evil materialist with the bigger house than mine. But a materialist is anyone who thinks his body to be the self. Who identifies with matter. He's a materialist. He can be completely poverty stricken or he can be very wealthy. It doesn't matter. But it's his conception of who he is, and where does he place value. And so Krishna describes it, that this material conception, it only produces anxiety. So we have an extraordinary task, how to present an alternative. How can you show that there is happiness beyond the material conception. You can argue on the basis of scripture, but it also has to be demonstrated that the person is satisfied. Otherwise, it doesn't carry much weight. For example, Srila Prabhupada, he came to America in 1965. He was a 70-year-old man with no money, boarded a cargo ship with two heart attacks on the ride, he landed in Boston Harbor, didn't know to take a left or right, made his way to New York City, struggled, and eventually opened a tiny little temple in Manhattan. But within the next 11 years, he circled the globe 14 times, opened 130 temples around the world, and trained over 10,000 students. So how was he able to share this knowledge so profoundly? How was he able to impact people? Because he was an example of everything that was being taught. Externally by his behavior and internally by his self-satisfaction. That's why drug-addicted hippies of the 60s were attracted to this man who was telling them, give up drugs, give up adultery and sleeping around. Because they saw this person had a much higher happiness, much higher pleasure than we could ever find through all our indulgences. So this Krishna describes in Bhagavad Gita that person who shares this knowledge with others in the 18th chapter he is actually the most dear to me. Because this is this mentality of, of what's wrong of just doing it for me? I'm not hurting anybody. Why can't I just do my spiritual life for myself? But if you want to practice spiritual life, you'll notice that it's actually, there are a lot of stumbling blocks. And if you want to overcome those stumbling blocks, you need somebody's help. And Krishna is saying in this 18th chapter that this is my soft spot. 
If you help others overcome all their stumbling blocks, I will help you overcome yours. If you help somebody get out of the chains of material existence, I will release you from material existence. Uh Uh-oh. So I'll stop here and see if there are any reflections, some comments. This gentleman, let's hear what you have to say. Some reflection. Absorbing. Oh, there's a gentleman in the back there. He's got some. The very back. Um, You said earlier, and it's been said before, that uh, the material situation is that everyone is aspiring to be like the ants. Work very hard and get some result, which is really actually there for him anyway. Um, That may be for the vast majority of people, certainly true, but um, those who are a little intelligent, they want to be clever and not work hard and get all the results. Yeah, that's... that's, uh David Mita, when he was David Mita Swami, when he was speaking, he said when he was a kid, there was a magazine that was uh, talking about how future occupations would be. That in the future, that because of technology, there would be so much leisure time. That if you wanted to get a job, the best kind of job you could have get was a leisure time engineer. Because people would have so much time free for themselves that they wouldn't know what to do. He's talking about nowadays. <laughs> so we find that people, it's a network of, it's a web of that we get caught in. We think if I just, for example, the Ford Motor Company. We, we love Ford Motor Company because we have a devotee who is the son of Henry Ford grandson of Henry Ford, and he's helped build so many temples and such. But the Ford Motor Company, one of their ads of the first automobile was this device will help solve the horse pollution problem. It is called the automobile. (laughs) It will solve the pollution problem. So, in our efforts to solve one problem, we make... 55 more. Thank you. All right, folks. Reflection. You got one? Something you remembered from the class? A doggy bag? Something to take home? Yamaraj, he's got a, go to Yamaraj, he's got a reflection. He's ready. Got to thank Krishna. He's, he's, he spoke the Bhagavad Gita. Yes, Prabhu, you were mentioning about uh, Buddhism. Uh, I think the, one of the fun rules is that this, this world and universe is illusion. We're an illusion here. We're not really in the real world. That's one of their conclusions. So the third noble truth of Buddhism is to stop suffering, is to stop desire. So it's kind of like if you have 
you know, it, you know, Dallas, we have the heavy rains. And so sometimes uh, there, you get a leak in your house. So one way to solve the leak is you blow up the house. There's no, then there becomes nothing. The Sanskrit word is shunya, zero. When everything becomes zero, then nothing has no problems. So that's where we differ philosophically. That actually, no, you don't stop desire because you actually exist. So desire is an expression, is exists because you exist. But it's corrupt, your desire has been corrupted. So it has to become purified. And the last of the four noble truths of Buddhism is that that is done by this eightfold path. So yeah, we uh, actually there's nothing does have a problem. I have a story about nothing has a problem. So in the material world, uh, in modern education, that we're taught that the world came from nothing. So there was this nothing, and he was feeling depressed. His mother was always on his case. Make something of yourself. Make something of yourself. And so he just couldn't take it. And then one day he just exploded. There was a big bang. And the, the, the nothing, he became a something. And But like a young man, eventually he started to settle down. And it started spinning. There were some rocks. One big round rock and there's some rocks on top. And so on this one big round rock, there were two small rocks. They met each other and it was love at first sight. And those two rocks gave birth to a mouse. Those mice gave birth to a sheep. And those sheep gave birth to a big hairy monkey. Uncle Harry and Lucy. Now if you go back in your family tree, some will say you go back far enough, you will see uh, a monkey, Lucy, and uh, Uncle Harry. If you go back even further, you'll see the black sheep of the family. You go back where there's a mouse, and then you even go all the way to the beginning, there's some rocks. <laughs> this is called science fiction. So we should understand, not all uh, reasoning holds the same weight. For example, you have like a uh, murder mystery. In a murder mystery, they say the child definitely did not do the murder, nor was it the the 80-year-old butler. But it must have been the butler because there was no, you know, they found no other option. But then later on they find there's a secret trap door. So there's some new information that comes that nullifies their their understanding. So ablative reasoning means when you have a situation where you cannot repeat the scientific experiment, you do not have a control group, it is not the same as inductive reasoning or deductive reasoning. Where there is a sense of repeatability, control, etc. So in ablative reasoning, you take a small piece of information and you make a very grand extrapolation. So if people of today cannot solve 
two-year murder mysteries, how should you blindly accept them when they say, this is factually what took place eight billion years ago? That's called blind faith. It's, it doesn't hold the same weight as an experiment that you can see in process. So, stop there. Any other reflections? Thank you, thank you, sir. <laughs> Woo-woo! Haribo! So, Om Tat Sat, thanks a lot. Hare Krishna! Hare Krishna.